Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 85. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. We have a great show for you today. And before we get started, I wanted to share an email I got from Claire Diaz-Ortiz, my guest a few weeks back on episode 82. She said, writing to me, your listeners are amazing. She went on to say, I wrote down all of their recommendations on the blog post and Instagram, and it's overwhelmingly awesome. She used four exclamation points, so I think she meant it. They really were amazing. Claire said in that episode that she felt like she already knew about and had already read almost everything in her very favorite genre, and I think many of you took that as a personal challenge. Thank you so much for showing up and really making another reader's day and exploding her to-be-read list in the best possible way. If you want to see those show notes for yourself that Claire was talking about with the list of books we discussed in that episode, plus your abundant recommendations, visit whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 82. And thank you all again so much for all the great reviews you've been leaving over on iTunes. You've added several hundred in the past month, and that is a huge deal for the show. So thank you. And you may get something out of it too. We're giving away five deluxe reading journal kits. That's the best-selling item in our shop at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash shop. We're giving away one each to five different winners. And to enter, just leave us a review on iTunes. We will randomly choose five different winners and each will win their very own deluxe reading journal kit. And we'll announce those winners in a future episode and share how you can get in touch with us to claim your kit. Thanks so much for taking two minutes out of your day to do that. I really appreciate it. And of course, I hope you win. Now, for today's episode, we are once again going international. Today, I'm talking to Charity Dushikaba, an Iowa native who, as you'll hear, is now a permanent resident in a small town in the Czech Republic. We talk about how she ended up making her big move, what convinced her to stay, and the impact that big life change has had on her reading life. We also discuss navigating difficult bookish situations, like what to do when you hate your best friend's favorite book. And of course, we dive into Charity's favorites. On that note, a funny thing happened to me when I just listened through this episode before sharing it with you. Recently, I was inspired to finally pull an older book off my shelf, one that I've been meaning to read for ages. One night, I needed a new title to read, and I saw it on my bookshelf and thought, you know, I've had this on my mind lately, and I'm going to start it right now. And I did, and I really enjoyed it. But I didn't realize until my listen-through of Charity's episode that the whole reason it was on my mind was because Charity named it as one of her favorites. You'll hear all about it today. It's the memoir she chooses is the second of her three favorite books. Let's get to it. Charity, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Well, it is mutual, and I'm so excited to be talking to someone on the other side of the ocean again. So you were in the Czech Republic, correct? Correct. Okay. Tell us a little bit about where exactly you are and how you got there. Well, I'm sitting in Ostrava right now, which is a city in the northeastern part of the Czech Republic. I've heard it as described as being founded by teachers and miners. So it's an industrial town, Czech Republic's little Detroit. And I also spent time in Velaške Mezežiči, which I only mentioned because it's impossible to say. <laughs> Thank you for showing off for us. You're welcome. 
How did you end up there? Are you a Czech native? Are you a minor or a teacher? I was teaching until I went on my maternity leave, which I still have another year and a half or so left of. I'm sorry, what? Yes. The Czech system is very generous to mothers. And so a woman can choose to take between one and four years of parental leave. I had no idea. It's a great system. And also the spouse can take it instead of the wife if they prefer. And the job that the person has before the leave must be uh, waiting for them when they're finished. So what did you choose and how long have you been on leave? So I chose two years, but that's the parental leave. There's also six months before that, which is the maternity leave. Uh -huh. So I left my work as an art teacher in March of 2016, and my daughter was born at the end of April. So she's one year old, and we've still got a lot of time together before I have to go back to work. Congratulations. Now, Thank how does you. that work if you have multiple children? If you're already on leave and you get pregnant, if you haven't fully used up the money because you also receive some support from the state, if you haven't fully used that up by the time your next child is born, the remaining funds just kind of evaporate, but you are able to continue with parental leave. Uh, it just starts anew with the birth of the next child. Interesting. How long have you been in the Czech Republic? I have been here five and a half years. And what brought you there? So as a high school student, my church cooperated with a church in Prague, and the church did some English camp during the summer, so they always wanted some native speakers. So I visited a couple times as a high school student, and at the end of college, they somehow lost their teachers, and I got a random call asking if I'd be willing to come. So I came for the camp, felt like my business in the Czech Republic wasn't quite finished, and applied for a Fulbright. And through the Fulbright program, I came for one year working with a local gymnasium, so a university-driven high school, as well as for a music conservatory, help working with the English teachers. And then after that, I just happened to be at a picnic talking to some teachers from a local international school, the Osterva International School, and they told me they needed an art teacher. And I wasn't willing to stay to teach English, but when I heard that they needed a teacher in the field that I studied, which was art and art education, I just couldn't turn it down. Okay, interesting. At what point did you realize, well, maybe I'm being presumptuous, do you feel like you will be in the Czech Republic for the long haul, or is that still evolving? I think I definitely will be. Um, my parents can't be upset because my dad was with me on my first trip to the Czech Republic. <laughs> and he continues to come nearly each year to help at the English camps. So we still have that connection. And since my husband's an only child, I think it would be quite unfair to his parents to take their only son and their only grown children and move them across the ocean. Are you from the U.S. originally? Yes. So I am from Iowa and then I studied in Minnesota and almost immediately I came to the Czech Republic. Iowa to Prague. So it was that teaching job that took you to Ostava. Yeah. When I received the Fulbright, I applied to the Czech Republic and they fit their applicants to the schools where they thought they would be a good fit. And I was very fortunate because one of the first contacts that I made uh, actually became my matron of honor a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. And she had herself had been a Fulbrighter in Michigan when she was working on her PhD 
in American literature. So I was given my best friend basically immediately and more than that, a best friend who is a voracious reader who generously shares her books and her insights. So that's been wonderful and I couldn't have imagined that that would happen. How has living in a country where the first language is not your own, how has that affected your reading life? At first, it it caused me to read a lot of classics because I didn't want to spend a lot of money on Kindle books. And when I wasn't sure how long I was going to be here, I also didn't want to bring my whole library. So I was reading classics that were free on Kindle and borrowing books. And as the years have gone on, uh, I've been borrowing books from my good friend, Yana. I know another American who's an active reader, and she's better at keeping up with contemporary literature than I am. So she reads the newer releases and is generous enough to lend them to me. And I just have to be choosy about what I read and intentional. And I really evaluate whether my money is worth ordering it from the UK or buying it on Kindle before I choose to read it. What's the extra added expense of getting a book in from the UK? Well, there's a website called Book Depository, and they advertise that they don't charge any shipping worldwide. But it's not like Amazon where you can find used books. You're always getting new books, and so you're getting them at this typical book price that's just set. So it's not really a big cost in shipping, just you're you're buying it at the normal price. Okay. So you are able to get new books. Definitely. That aren't. So it's not a markup of 500 or 5,000%, but it is definitely not cheap. Okay. Okay. Interesting. How's your check after five, six years? Um, I used to think that language proficiency was described as fluent or not fluent, but now after dealing with language for so long, I see there's so much more than fluency. So some people would say I'm fluent, but because Czech has such a complicated grammar, uh, they, have, they have this system of declension, which means that there is something like 150 possible endings to a noun or an adjective in any given sentence based on if it's a direct object or indirect object and so on. So I would say it's good. I'm conversant depending on the topic, but it's still quite easy to make grammatical mistakes. I'm an American who has only been to Prague, which was amazing, but that's my entire experience with the Czech Republic. So what would people in my shoes be surprised at to find out what it's like to live in Ostava? I think one of the biggest difference, which might seem petty initially, is that society is much more pedestrian that they have in the Czech Republic a wonderfully functioning public transport service as well as train connections. So there isn't a necessity to have a car, which for me feels like great freedom that even though I'm not driving here, although I probably will be doing Czech driver's ed soon. Oh, wow. Oh, not looking forward <laughs> to that one. <laughs> but I haven't felt any sort of limitation by not driving in these past five and a half years. And it's also made me more aware of my surroundings. In the past, when it was spring, I didn't notice uh, how the buds looked on different trees or even how the new growth looks on some evergreens. But because I'm walking each day, it makes me more connected to the place that I'm actually in. So for me, that's a huge difference in lifestyle between the Czech Republic 
and living in the U.S. And Czechs are generally nature and sport lovers. So even a so-called lazy Czech might go out on the weekend for a 15-kilometer hike. So, I don't know, nine miles. And they'll hike up a mountain and sit in the pub at the top of the mountain and drink a couple beers and hike down. And this is, you know, a quote-unquote lazy person. <laughs> so I really appreciate how much Czechs are active in leisurely sports like hiking or biking or swimming. Another fact that I shared with my niece when she was researching the Czech Republic is that the Czech Republic has the highest number per capita of castles and chateaux. So they are common destinations for hikes or walks. That is very cool. Now, am I imagining things or do I remember reading that you met your husband on a hike? I did. I like to say I met him in the forest. <laughs> that sounds very poetic. And it's kind of where he belongs. He studied uh, winemaking and horticulture and these kinds of things. And so it, it's suitable that I should meet him in the forest. But we met through mutual friends. Um, I met someone who knew someone who went to high school with him. And even though it was basically a complete stranger, I accepted the invitation for a hike because all of my friends were basically pregnant and were not actively hiking. So I went on a hike and I got a husband out of it finally. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. It's a great accomplishment. <laughs> Maybe that was the wrong thing to say. Charity, that's all so interesting. And that makes me itching to get back. I don't know if you ever listened to the episode we had with Melissa Jewel Wan back before Christmas, but she is probably best known for being a food blogger, a paleo blogger. And she and her husband just moved to Prague because they loved it. Um, a couple of weeks ago, so right now I am vicariously experiencing that move strictly through her emails and social media accounts. And it's fun to talk to you too and picture all the hikes and castles and all that. I'm sure I'm doing it badly, but it's something I would love to see. You don't have any photos or anything online we could check out, do you? I have a blog that was excitedly kept when I first came here. And as life and family took over, it's been less attended to, but I sometimes blog at midwesternmiracle.blogspot.com. And I'm on Instagram, but it's all private. I understand. Okay, we will. I will look that up and we will put that in show notes. I can't wait to see. Okay, Charity, we've heard about your on the ground three dimensional life. Tell us a little bit about your reading life. What's your history as a reader? I have been reading for longer than I can remember. My mother tells me that I was reading before I went to school. And my earliest reading memory is that I misspelled bear and wrote beer when I was in kindergarten, <laughs> which maybe just foretold that I would be living in the Czech Republic as an adult. But it's something that I always had access to. We had a house full of books. I lived in a small town. So during the summer, I would just walk or bike back and forth to the library. And I remember in college, in the honors program, we had to submit what we'd read during the summer at in the fall. And it was one of my favorite things to do to just geek out in the summer and read and then read what all of the other students uh, had been reading. And I still have a to be read list that's from that time at college. So it's been something that's been with me. And I've always appreciated books abilities to expand my perspective, especially regarding cultures and 
just life situations that are vastly different than my own. Can you tell me about a time that you especially remember when that happened? Well, one summer during college, I was taking a summer course and I lived with a family who had spent 25 years in Taiwan and their house was still filled with pieces of their life from Taiwan. And as I had talked to them, I realized that there was this huge gap in my knowledge of Asia, of its history. And so naturally I turned to books to help fill in that gap. So I read books like Life and Death in Shanghai, which was about a woman who was an intellectual who was imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution. And in instances like that, or also in college, when I realized that there was a big gap in my knowledge of Black history, I dove into memoirs from everyone, from like Dubois to contemporaries. And I continued to use books as a way to understand cultures. Even in the Czech Republic, my first year here, I was reading Bohumil, Rabel, and Kundera, and other Czechs to try to figure out what was it in the Czech mindset that I was missing that I wasn't even aware of. Were the books helpful in that regard? I think definitely. I really enjoy especially looking through memoirs to get voices because it helps me remember that it's not necessarily the whole culture, but this is one person's story. And so through empathizing with that one person, it gives me one possible lens into that culture. And it also helps me feel a very much more personal connection to that time or that place or that socioeconomical situation. Interesting. What's your reading life like now? And I'm aware that you've gone through a lot of changes in the past few years. Right. So after giving birth, I spend a lot of time breastfeeding. Not a big surprise. And so I would keep books around my flat as well as on my phone, on my Kindle app, and so I was really happy when I could spend plenty of time just reading and breastfeeding or my baby was very much one and is very much one who likes to have lots of contact. So I would just let her fall asleep in my arms and I would just continue reading. And so I read some very long books that I would not have had opportunity to read else, elsewhere otherwise. <laughs> like what? What were some of those long ones? Uh, one that's been talked about on your podcast before I know is the goldfinch. Uh -huh. So that's a nice doorstop. And <laughs> I was able to get through it and get through some difficult parts because mm -hmm. I know that people have very strong opinions about that book. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get through that through, through breastfeeding. I also read some terrible books um, <laughs> because there was a short window of time that my library app was working and I could check out books and I kind of wasted that time. <laughs> by reading some terrible books. Oh no. So I read a string of Maeve Binchy when my daughter was teething in the middle of the night and she would just be awake from two to three. Mm -hmm. And I would say it was a perfect time to re read Maeve Binchy because it did not require much intellectual work. But after reading a few books, I really never wanted to look at another person <laughs> in my life. Fair enough. Okay. Charity, I can't wait to dive into your favorites. Are you are you ready to talk? I think so. About your picks? Okay. You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. Okay. Let's start with your favorites. What's the first book you love? The first book I've chosen was 
Peace Like a River by Leif Anger. Yes, tell us about it. This is a longtime favorite of mine. It was recommended to me by my sister, who was at that point teaching English in Minnesota, and this is one of the required books in her curriculum. And I did not expect to fall in love with it the way that I did. And I think part of it is that Leif Anger's voice to me feels really pure. Uh, it reminds me of some other voices like James Harriet or... Uh, the author of When Breath Becomes Air, that it seems like it's a person who has such a clear view on the world that you just feel enriched reading the book. And so this is a young adult book, and it centers on a family. It's a father with his three sons. And in the opening pages, you meet Reuben, who's in the book. He's, I think, 12 years old, but he's telling the story from the perspective of being an adult. So he's an adult remembering a story when he was 12. And it starts with recounting basically his miraculous birth and that that miracle was caused by his father. And he basically says that he was a witness to these miracles that his father was performing. I don't want to scare anyone away to make them think it's all about <laughs> these supernatural things because the tone is very much matter of fact. This is a family living in Minnesota in the 60s. And I just found the whole family to be very lovable. There's the younger sister who's very much like Scout. Uh, there's Reuben who's telling the story, his older brother who he very much admires and looks up to him. And then there's the father who is this very intelligent yet humble man who, for some mysterious reason, has decided to be content with living as, or making his living as a school janitor. And I don't want to give away much of the plot. I just want to say that this was a book that when I read it, it opened up to me a lot of things about literature that I hadn't really grasped yet, like how prose can be very near to poetry at times or how an author can show you what a person is like, not by telling you everything, that he was nice and he was brave and he was courageous, but by showing you little moments and little conversations and letting the reader be intelligent enough to make the conclusions themselves. Uh, it's a book I like to read each year, actually. I like to read it in the winter because there's a nice winter hunting scene. I'm totally not a hunter. But because of this winter scene, I always like to reread it in the winter. I can see that. How long have you been reading this book every year? I first read it when I was maybe 17. And I reread it in college, actually, because I found out that one of my new friends in college was the author's son. Really? So I got totally fangirl. Yeah, because I, I studied in Minnesota. And the author, he worked for Minnesota Public Radio for a long time before he wrote this book. And I noticed the same last name, and this was in the early years of Facebook, and I had it listed as a favorite book, and I noticed that a couple of my new Facebook friends also had it listed. And so, uh, actually, it was the nephew of the author who said, yeah, he is a relation, he's, you know, he's Reed's dad. But I was always too embarrassed to really talk to him much about the book. <laughs> I've heard that Lynn Anger's works are also quite good, but I haven't read any. Have Have you? I read one of his, I can't remember the title of it, but it's one that's based on basically the Hamlet story, but put into a modern context. And I remember really enjoying it. I know that Lynn and Leif cooperated quite a lot and that Leif Anger credits Lynn with a lot of his own development as a writer. They also did a bunch of 
uh, I don't remember if it was cowboy stories or mysteries together. I ordered them, but I never actually read them. Do you have them with you in the Czech Republic? I think I actually do. I think my father brought them back in a big box of books. <laughs> okay. Charity, what's book two? Book two is actually a book of poetry. Uh, it's another Midwest connection. The author, Ted Kuzier, was born just a few miles away from where I was. And it, this collection is called Delights and Shadows. And I believe it was published when he was Poet Laureate of the United States. And what I love about Kuzier's poems is that they're very accessible. Often he's talking about really ordinary things around you, but with really fresh language, with unexpected metaf metaphors. And I think it makes an easy access point to someone who's maybe not sure that they're interested in poetry. For me, it was the first contemporary poet that I really enjoyed. And also after seeing him read his poetry and it is poetry that is enhanced by being read aloud. I had an even deeper appreciation for it. So can you share a couple lines with us? Uh, so for example, one poem, he's, he's talking about a necktie and the act of tying it. And the first couple lines of the poem read, his hands fluttered like birds, each with a fancy silk ribbon to weave into their nest. And he also has a lovely poem about a telescope where he's talking about the telescope as this kind of connecting point that's holding the universe back from spilling all over us. And his poems include memories, they in include encounters with nature. And I think part of my connection to his poetry is the fact that he grew up in Iowa, he now lives in Nebraska, and I think he's still teaching poetry at Lincoln or at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And for me, it just feels like coming home when I open one of his poems. I love it. I just tied a bow tie for the very first time and his, his description about, about the birds weaving sounds pretty perfect. Did you feel like you formed a perfect nest? No, no, I did not. <laughs> but that makes me appreciate the poetry of it all the more. Is poetry in your typical reading mix? It was more so in the past. One of the only college courses I took that was unnecessary to take was the writing of poetry. So it's something that I like to pick up when I have a still moment, which I don't have many of those right now. <laughs> but I, I enjoy authors like Gary Soto, and I have a contemporary poetry collection that I like to flip open every once in a while. But it's a genre that I feel like I've been neglecting, but I would be happy to return to it more intentionally. What inspired you to take that course in college? I wrote a lot of poetry in high school. I did an independent study program where I wrote, I don't know, probably a hundred poems or more. So uh, I was really divided between becoming an art major and an English major. And ironically, kind of through a book, I chose to be an art major. What was the book? My name is Asher Lev by Chaim Potok. And what was it in that book that changed your mind? Well, it's about an artist. And I remember reading that book and thinking, wow, Potok really knows what the mind of an artist is like. And I found out later that he actually did some painting of his own. But the story follows the experience of a, a 
a Jewish boy who's a very gifted artist and the conflict between his art and his religion. And there's something about the veracity with which he goes at his art that I found very contagious. And when I was reading the book, I started producing much more independently. And the written word and visual art have, have always been two very strong loves, and they're always vying for my attention. And I, they're just my two lovers. I can't resist either of them. That sounds really cheesy. <laughs> Sometimes those important things come out sounding that way, or at least that is completely my experience. No, that's really interesting. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Is that a book you reread or is that one that was extremely important to you at that one point in your life and you let it stay there? I know I had the intention to reread it. I probably have reread it at least once. Um, Potok is a power enough author that I basically read his entire collection uh, because he also addresses these issues of cultural conflict, which are intriguing to me. But I think it's something that I could benefit from rereading, especially at this season where I've put so much attention into entering motherhood that I feel like that's where my creative powers have gone. And I've been searching for what my next visual artwork could be. And I think returning to a book like that could really inspire me to start putting pen to paper or paint to paper and just get back into it. I love the sound of that, the interplay between the written word and the visual art. I think they're not so far apart as they seem. Because for me, one of the things I love the most about books is when an author has a really good sense of imagery and when they can communicate that very clearly. And those are the books that seem to stay with me. Okay, I will keep that in mind for later. Charity, what's your book three? Book three, uh, it's a memoir. I almost threw in another book that I reread often, but instead I'm going with a recently read memoir, which is Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking. Yes, tell us about it. So it was not published so recently. It came out in 2005, but this is a book where she's recounting her experience of the death of her husband and the aftermath, how it affects her, how she copes with it. And the title comes from the fact that after he dies... She finds herself doing somewhat nonsensical things, like she gets rid of most of his clothes, but she keeps some of them and she keeps some shoe, his shoes because if he comes home, he's going to need his shoes. And so that's where this the year of magical thinking comes from because she realizes that she's not really fully accepted his death, perhaps, and so she finds herself kind of slipping into certain thought patterns. And... What I really admired about this book is it was such a clear representation of grief. And I I lost my brother around actually the same time that her the same year that her husband died. And so I'm always really impressed when I encounter a book that really clearly expresses the experience I had or a near experience. And so for example, grief often comes in waves and she communicates that through her writing by repeating certain phrases. And she also references plenty of other poets or she or she references research about medical things uh, because her husband died of a heart attack. So sometimes she's trying to piece together what happened. And so she will 
figure out, you know, at what point would the person be considered dead or uh, she's finding all of these details. And because she spent so many years writing nonfiction and fiction, doing journalistic writing, she's able to serve this experience so clearly with the way that she writes. One of my favorite parts is when she's talking about uh, Emily Post's etiquette book, and she's talking specifically about the section on grief and how accurate it is, but how society today is somehow scared of grief and doesn't allow grieving, that public mourning is no longer a thing. And she just puts such a clear voice and represents her experience so fully that I was very impressed with the work. Emily Post. I had no idea. I've been meaning to read this book. Um, I'm a little scared of it because I know it is about grief and I've heard that it's so well done and that sounds like it could be touching and also really painful to read. But Emily Post, that's fascinating. Like she talks about the fact that Emily Post references that people who are grieving should be brought broth. You know, no heavy food, just bring them some broth. And I also remember in my own experiences with grief, like I lost weight. Like I really needed someone just to bring me some food to eat something. And she references how Post talks about how you should have someone to manage X, Y, and Z. And even though this was from, I think, 1922, it's all of her, the advice from Emily Post is completely relevant today. It's just that we don't do it. And I think the year of magical thinking isn't such a scary book. Like, of course, sitting down to dinner and having your husband pass away is, I think, a fear for plenty of women. I think this experience of a sudden death of a spouse is definitely a scary thing. But because of her history of writing both fiction and nonfiction, I think she's able to kind of put a journalistic perspective on it and sometimes just be very matter of fact about this is what happened. So it's emotional and maybe semi-detached at the same time. Did that make it easier to read? Because it almost sounds like it was painful for you in a different way, in that you could have read it through the lens of, oh, I wish people had done that for me, what she was talking about. And I, I wish other people had been there for me the way that she's describing in this book, as would be ideal. Like, I think there's enough distance for me for my from like the death of my brother that it wasn't necessarily painful to read. I think at this point I was reading it more as the more from the perspective of a wife that if I suddenly lost my husband that would you know just completely change what what my life looks like especially living in a foreign country. You know, suddenly I'm in this American alone in the Czech Republic. That makes me want to read it. Okay, Charity I love the way you phrase this next part. Could you tell me about a book that you did not delight in? <laughs> well, this book, I, it was a choice for a book club. A book club that is floundering. Oh, no. <laughs> we basically had one meeting, or we had one like pre-meeting for the club, and then an official book club meeting, which had... 66% of the members, which means there were two of us instead of three of us. <laughs> and uh, my friend Vanessa hated the book I chose because we just decided to do multiple books. And I hated the book she chose. But because I knew it was for book club, I was so intentional with how 
I did not delight in her book. <laughs> I really wanted to be able to voice why I didn't love it. But the more distance I have for the book, the more I can appreciate it, despite not really liking it. And that is A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Yes, the Pulitzer winner. Yes, it won a Pulitzer. And can I really be a better judge than a Pulitzer? (laughs) (laughs) I actually opened it up and was rereading the first couple pages. And now with some distance, I could see how it was kind of funny. But my problem with the book is that I went into it expecting satire. And I was ready for that. It is a picaresque novel, which I didn't even really know much about what that was as a genre until afterwards. But the main character is this obese man with a black mustache who's always wearing a green hunting cap with ear flaps. And it just follows his misadventures. And my problem with the book is I didn't see any sort of redemption in it. There was nothing to be admired. I just didn't know why I should care about this book at all. And it does come together nicely at the end. It's got the satisfying finish of, okay, all of these tiny loose ends somehow do pull together. But I just found him so repulsive, and he's supposed to be repulsive but it just didn't do it for me. I did not enjoy the experience. And if it hadn't been for the book club meeting, I never would have finished it. Did your friend really like this one? Uh, The friend that recommended it, it's one of her favorites. And when I asked her, why do you like it? And she said, it's because what's, what's not to like about it? Every sentence in that book belongs. What did you choose for that book club meeting? I actually chose Peace Like a River which she hated. <laughs> but but I think that was because um, she didn't know it was young adult going in, which to me, that was irrelevant. And one of the themes in the book, uh, especially in this political time, didn't sit with, well with her. And it's not supposed to be a political story, but because of what's in the air these days, it was just not the right time for her to be reading that book. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I wish your book club well. Thank you. I'm hoping it's not doomed. We're hoping to, well, my idea is to use a field trip to help rejuvenate it. Because in Brno, there's this famous villa called Villa Tugenat. And Simon Maurer's, oh great, what's the book called? The Glass Room? I think that's what it's called, is based on that particular villa. So my idea is we could read that book and then go see the villa. And hopefully that would inspire us to work, work more on our book club. I certainly hope so. If a villa can't save your book club, it really is doomed. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Charity, what are you reading right now? So I've got a lot of books going right now. Um, I'm reading also in Czech. I'm reading C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian in Czech. Mm -hmm. How's that going? For you? I, I think it was a good choice because it's fiction. So you're eager to continue reading it, even if you have to stumble through a foreign language. So I think it will be good for my check. I'm also rereading C.S. Lewis's Letters to Malcolm. But I think the books that I'm most excited about are um, Anne Voskamp's 1000 Gifts, Michelle or Michelle. Not sure about the pronunciation. I don't know if it's male or female. Sorry. Uh, Borba's Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in, in, in Our All About Me World. 
And then I'm reading a biography, which is Mistress Bradstreet by Charlotte Gordon. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, I have ideas for you. Help me out, though. Is it better to choose books? I have titles in mind. Let me see. Okay, I have eight or nine on this list here. Is it better to choose new or old? Does genre matter? Oh, and I didn't ask, what would you like to be different in your reading life? So let's roll that all together and give me a little more to go on. (laughs) So... Part of what I would like to be different in my reading life is I would like to be more intentional about reading in Czech, um, which I guess you probably can't really help me out on, (laughs) but... I will try. I would also like to be just generally more intentional with how I choose my books, because sometimes I will read a book by an author, love it, binge on it, and then never touch that author again. Example, Agatha Christie. (laughs) And so I would like to just be intentional about how I choose my books and continue to keep variety, like going between fiction, nonfiction, memoir. I generally read almost any genre. I'm not so crazy about sci-fi, but if it's well-written, I can also enjoy sci-fi. Okay. I'll see what I can do right after the break. Charity, welcome back. Thank you. Okay. So as we choose books for you, what I am paying most attention to is tone. And like you said, I have a very loose idea of what is actually available in Czech, but I can focus on the variety. And so we're going to do that today. And this is a long shot. I feel certain you must have read The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. But that's the first thing I thought of because it seems to match your tone and he's a Czech writer. So, Well, I have read it. Uh, I read it in English and actually... Kundera's work, a certain number of his titles, he forbade them to be translated into Czech. That he he emigrated to France, and uh, it's a bit of a complicated story. <laughs> but uh, he actually restricted some of his books to be translated in Czech. So I think he wrote a lot of books finally in French. But I would have to revisit the facts on that one. So don't trust me too much. But The Unbearable Lightness of Being, I did not enjoy his tone. There was something, I'll quote my friend on this. She said that she felt he sometimes put his characters in unfair positions. And I found myself resonating with that. Like, I don't think of him as being kind. Like, I really like books that have some redemption in them, something to... Yes, they can be challenging, but at the end of it, I want to leave it feeling like I understand humanity more or that I'm somehow encouraged to act positively in society. And Kundera didn't do that for me. I can see that. I I have mixed feelings about that book. I absolutely hated it when I first read it. I mean, wished I could wipe it from my mind, unread it. I read it over Christmas. Oh. That was like the wrong time to read Kundera. I think I read it in a sitting on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in like a window seat. Oh, I mean, I just hated it. And I can I can appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> but great title, right? It's such I mean, it sounds like a, a wonderful title. title. But since since I first read it, I mean, immediately after, but then even now, I found myself coming back and back to his central 
metaphor about light and heavy. And that sounds super nerdy, but anyone who's read it, I hope you get what I'm talking about. And if you haven't read it, I hope you're at least not thinking, wow, that is so esoteric. But so I found myself coming back to his theme, like it changed the way I thought about things, which is high praise. And yet, oh, I just really, it did not make me feel, it was just, it made me feel kind of icky to read it. It's not something I relish as part of the reading experience. Okay. All right. We're going to try to go a little happy. What do you think about new, old? What's, what's difficult or easier for you to get? I like both. I mean, if it's really old, that means that I get it for free on Kindle. And <laughs> in the past, I was one of those snobs who didn't necessarily trust the value of contemporary literature. So sometimes I wanted to wait, you know, 10 or 20 years after publication to see if a book really had some endurance in it. Yes, I can appreciate that. However, the first one I have in mind for you is brand new. Let's hear it. Be and it's because of the tone. Now, I have mentioned this on the podcast before, but haven't spent a lot of time talking about it. So the first book is by the memoirist, Danny Shapiro. It's called Hourglass, and the subtitle is Time, Memory, and Marriage. Do you know anything about this book or the author's work? I don't. It sounds so familiar, but I'm not matching it to anything. Well, it's new. It just came out in 2017 in April, and this is her latest this is one of those books, like I just love Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety very much. And I feel like that novel is impossible to talk about in a way that makes it sound anything other than completely boring. And I'm afraid that this memoir might be the same, but I found it riveting in the number of book darts I used, like marking up all the quotes I wanted to come back to was excessive, but it deserved it. So in this novel, she is, I believe she's in her fifties and she's looking back over her marriage, which we find out after a little bit is actually her second marriage, the one that stuck, uh, or it might actually be her. I think it's just her second marriage for a second. I thought, wait, is this her third? But I think it's her second marriage. So she's looking back and she's reflecting on their life together. And it's not all happy, clappy, um, sentimental, I mean, she talks about the ways her husband is actively letting her down and what that's like after being married for so long. And can she really depend on him? And this is really hard. And then she references him editing her work as she's writing. Cause I thought like, oh man, that's kind of harsh. <laughs> and then his notes are, you make me sound like a hero. Like, come on, I'm not that great a guy, but it's just so interesting. And what I like about this for you is it's got that reflective, contemplative, really fascinating, almost haunting kind of quality about it that I can see in the work she really like. And she's very spare with her language as a good poet is like her words are very carefully crafted and used very intentionally. And she's examining the overlooked aspects of everyday life. Like the things that are right in front of you, but that you don't always stop to really reflect on. And she just says some things that are so interesting about how the really interesting moments worth exploring in life are the near misses. And as one example, 
she talks about her child, about parenthood, about something that almost happened. And I won't go into that, but she keeps coming back to it in the book. And then she talks about like, what if she hadn't gone to that day after Halloween party she didn't want to go to? And what if her husband hadn't decided to go to the party he didn't want to go to? And what if they hadn't met? Like that changed the course of their life. Those, And like, what if they hadn't? But those things that don't happen, happen every day to everyone. And she, the way she explores that is really, really interesting. So the subtitle, Time, I think we covered that, Memory, she's looking back, and Marriage. And I think this isn't the kind of book that I would have loved when I was 22, but in my 30s, I think I have enough life experience that I get what she's saying, and I find it really, really interesting. And I think you might also be in a place and be the kind of reader who would find this really engaging and be sympathetic to it. What do you think? It sounds fascinating. Like, I don't see anything that sounds boring in that. I'm glad I could do her justice. (laughs) Well, it's about... Time, memory, marriage. I mean, that does sound like a yawner. The The cover is really cool, though. Like, it's a really pretty black and white striking photo. To me, it really sounds like it resonates with the essentials of being human and being in relationships. So to me, that immediately pulls me in. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear it. Because I think, I think it's in your wheelhouse. Okay, for book two, I was I was thinking about The Handmaid's Tale. Have you read it? I did. The same Vanessa that gave me a a confederacy of dunces lent me that book and I enjoyed it. You did. Okay. Because I was thinking what you said about the Kundera that maybe it was not for you. Okay. I am glad to hear you enjoyed it. I, I was able to appreciate the story. It definitely made me think about things. It wasn't, you know, a happy feel good story, but I don't necessarily steer away from dystopias. Okay. I hear you. For book two, the way you were describing Joan Didion and Peace Like a River made me wonder if you were familiar with Snow Falling on Cedars by David Gooderson. I have that book in my flat, and I've just been staring at it for years. Have you ever read it? Never. Okay. Well, here's what we have. So first of all, this novel is set in the I think it's set on a fictional island in the very real Puget Sound on the Washington state coast. And it's set in the 50s. And this is one of those novels that it's not the plot that makes you read it. It's the, it's its emotional power. So the way you described Leif Inger's very straightforward prose and the way it kind of draws you in and the way he describes the cold When I think of this novel, I think of being very, very cold. Um, When you talked about a novel giving you a lens into a different culture and way of thinking, I kept thinking about this book because at its heart, we have two people who cannot understand each other as much as they love each other because of their different backgrounds. So this, this book definitely has that haunting tone going I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but we have people who care deeply about each other, or depending on which people in the story we are talking about directly, people who are being linked to each other who cannot understand each other because of their cultural backgrounds. And on this this fictional island we have, um, it's called San Pedro Island, which sounds like it could be 100% real if you didn't know that Gooderson made it up. We have um, white people and 
Japanese citizens and Japanese descendants and the cultural barrier, even though they have the best intentions is persistent. And I only say surprising because when you're reading it, you think like, Oh, like everyone is trying so hard. Like, can they just, isn't that enough? And I'm not going to answer that, but what he has here going for him is, um, really great characters, uh, realistic. His mood is really good. Like this is really atmospheric in an interesting setting. And he addresses historical issues without making this an issues book or a history book. It's just really absorbing. Um, this was a staple and still is to a lesser extent now on, um, high school reading lists. And I don't mean that as like a Oh, you have to be made to read that book. But as in, this is a contemporary novel that does have wonderful literary merit. And I'm just bringing that out because you said sometimes you'd like to see, like, is a book gonna, does it have the staying power for people still to be reading it 20, 30 years later? And I think that is a vote in the yes column. How does that not terribly detailed description sound to you? I think it sounds interesting. In a strange way, it reminds me of Pocahontas, the song Savages, where you just want them to understand each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you really do. And it also reminds me of The English Patient. And if I'm catching the feeling correctly, that it's not so much about what's actually happening, but more about getting the feeling that it's more about the atmosphere that's being given off through the words. Yes. And the action well, what the action in the story is doing, what the plot is doing is bringing those those feelings simmering below the surface up to where we can see them and see how they're affecting everyone when it all bubbles over or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. <laughs> I think you've made a good case for me to finally take it off my shelf. Well, I hope it's a sign that it's been in your flat for all these years, but hasn't been read. Well, and it's traveled thousands of thousands of miles, so it might as well be read. Exactly. I like the sound of that. Okay. For book three, if you haven't read them, I want to cheat and give you four. What do you know about Madeline Lengel's The Crosswicks Journals? I love Madeline Lengel. My third love was almost walking on water. But as much as I've heard about the journals, I still haven't read them. Well, this could be the time. If you can get your hands on them, I don't know that I want to read these in the check, though. Okay. So... The Crosswicks journals are so called because she wrote them at her family home, Crosswicks, and she covers so much ground and I don't even know what to say. What do you say about a four part memoir about someone who really lived a pretty amazing life? Okay. First of all, I think a circle of quiet is just a phenomenal title. She has a really interesting, I think it's in a circle of quiet itself. If it's not in walking on water, I might be mixing my lingles, but she talks about the difficulty of titling her books and how her mother actually plucked the words, a circle of quiet from this text here and gave the book its name. It was, it was almost called something that was really boring and tragic, but instead it's a circle of quiet, but she just tells such interesting stories. Um, and I think, especially given what you're reading now, I think you would find her um, insightful and relatable in the sense, not that you think like, oh, this could have been me, but like, oh, I understand what you're saying. I like you. 
you're explaining it really well. This sounds fascinating. You're enough like my life where I feel like you connect to me, but different enough that like, tell me everything. I can't figure out this stuff on my own. So it's just so interesting. She talks about like how A Wrinkle in Time was rejected like some crazy amount of times before it was published and the significance of getting the acceptance on her 40th birthday. And if I'm botching the facts, I'm getting the basic springboard to like how she discusses the writing life and what it does for the soul. Oh, she, she coins wonderful phrases that make you think, yes, I can trust this person. Like the tired 30s, as in, in your 30s, you will be tired, especially if you are um, working and if she is mothering and in a relationship and just trying to live your life. It's exhausting in the 30s. And that made me think like, oh, you are trustworthy and you understand things. So that's a circle of quiet. And then the other books are called The Irrational Season, The Summer of the Great Grandmother. Again, not a wonderful name, I don't think. And Two-Part Invention, which is largely focused on her longtime marriage. And I think based on what you like, tone, topic, and um, variety, we're coming back to memoir here, that this could be a series for you. What do you think? I think it's a great time to finally get to it. Okay. I like the sound of that. I do love Walking on Water. It's been too long since I've read that. I actually pulled it off my shelf <laughs> to reread it soon, or at least check what I've annotated it in. Do you make notes in your books? At times. It depends. I'm thinking that could be a time capsule, especially with a book like that. Yeah, that one was actually required reading for my writing of poetry class at university. Wow, I'm impressed. So, so if it is my own book, I definitely, if the feeling is strong enough, I definitely take out the pen or pencil or whatever is handy and start underlining and bracketing. I love it. Okay, Charity, of those three or six <laughs> books, which do you think you'll read next? I think I might start with Hourglass because I think it would be easy to get on Kindle. But there's something about how much I love Langle that I feel like I have to order them and read them in the physical book copy. Well, I hope you do. And I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Charity today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Charity and to let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 85, and it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there, at Ann Bogle, and at What Should I Read Next. If you want to be the first to find out what's happening behind the scenes, sign up for our newsletter. That's at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.